how long is too long to wait for justice? The Sixth Amendment to the Constitution says that you have the right to a speedy trial. That right is also law in Illinois, where defendants in state criminal court are supposed to be tried within four months of being taken into custody. But in Cook County, most people accused of murder are waiting more than four years for their cases to go to trial. That's one of the key findings from a Chicago Tribune investigation out this week called Stalled Justice. Reporters examined why the county has some of the slowest homicide cases in the nation and how years-long delays harm the accused, their families, victims' families, and taxpayers. So joining us now with more are Tribune reporters Megan Cropo and Joe Marr. Megan and Joe, welcome to Reset. Thanks so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Good to meet you <laughs> officially. Uh, so I'll start with you, Megan. You, you write that murder defendants in Cook County, uh, they're now typically spending, quote, longer than a presidential term waiting in jail just for their trial to start, right? So that's a long, long time, first of all. What happens during the period, though? Uh, well, it depends on what you're looking at, right? If you're looking at the actual time spent in court, not much. Generally, we see uh, the attorneys, the defendants, potentially some victims, family members come into court for these very brief hearings, minute or two, say, all right, you know, come back next month and then we're done. And that happens regularly. Uh, it, it happens for years and years and years, mm-hmm. and it can really wear on people who make that giant trek to the courthouse only to have to leave and come back for not much else later on. I mean, what we're seeing sort of under the surface is that every segment, every phase of a case has the opportunity to get delayed on the most nuts and bolts level, and that just compounds and compounds and compounds. Mm. Joe, delays in murder cases, they're worse here in Cook County than in Every other court system that people have studied, that includes Philadelphia and includes the Bronx, by how much? And what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, one of the difficult things is studying court systems across the country because a lot of, not a lot of people do it, unfortunately. Um, but what we are seeing in the one national study that was done, um, they looked at all those jurisdictions you mentioned, um, and and obviously some some big ones too, right? The right. Bronx, you know, the, all the boroughs, um, and you know, when we look at the boroughs, they were, when we did comparable data for Cook County, the boroughs were four times faster by this one metric that they measure by. And and it's just, um, you know, astounding. Mm. What it told me is that we're the worst in the nation. Is that a fair assumption? From the best we can tell, we're the worst in the nation, yeah. Before we go any further, Megan, I want you to explain why people are held in the Cook County Jail before they go to trial. Well, uh, the very first court appearance that you make after you're charged with a crime is generally going to be bond court. That's the place where a judge decides whether to let your let you out, what, you know, let you out after paying bail, or let you out on your own recognizance. Or the judges have the right to keep you in on a high money bond. Or generally, for these murder cases, it's no bond. You are in until someone can argue you out, mm-hmm. or until your case is resolved. So lay out the scope of your investigation for us, Joe, because this is the first of its kind, right? Yeah, exactly. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to figure out, number one, how long cases are taking. And you would think that would be an easy thing, right? You would think that there'd be some website you can go to with the court system and they would have stats that you could use. And there is none, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's a black hole. Uh, we were lucky enough that State's Attorney Kim Fox's office does put out raw data that we could use and crunch this. We had to write, not the average person can't really do it. You have to write code to do it. But we did it, and we were able to first document, number one, that these that these cases are going on longer than ever, right? Mm-hmm. That 
you know, 20 years ago, most murders were cases were were finished in two years, two years or less. And before the pandemic, it had crept up to four years. Now it's five, right? That's one part of the scope that we wanted to tell. But the other part we really wanted to tell was how it affects people, um, you know, from both perspectives, right? You have victims' families. Yeah. And I think Megan had mentioned this, just the challenge of they go into the system. You know, not a lot of people really know the courthouse, you know, unless you are doing business in there. A lot of people may not even know where it's at. You know, it's in, tucked in Little Village, not in the loop. Right. You know, unless you're driving by there, you might not even notice it. Um, but um, we wanted to be able to tell people who aren't familiar with this this place kind of just how difficult it can be for victims' families. So you, yeah. so, so you, so you go in there and you basically like Megan had mentioned, just the pain of not knowing when there's going to be resolution, of, of walking in there and having hearing after hearing where there's delay. That's one aspect of it, right, uh, where you can't really get that closure. The other aspect are the defendants, right? These are people who are presumed innocent, um, and they are stuck in a system where you had mentioned, you know, we have the speedy trial concept, right, where if you read the law, you might come away thinking, boy, four months, they got to get rid of this case. But that's they, not the case. That's not the case at all, right? Because the way the law is written is there's so many loopholes in it that invariably it allows the system to keep people month after month, year after year after year. And what yeah. does that do to them, right? What does that do to them? You know, statistically, four out of five are going to be found guilty eventually, right? But there's the other fifth, right? And then even for the people who are found guilty, what does it do to you when you are stuck in this limbo year after year after year? Mm-hmm. And when we talked to the sheriff's office and they had mentioned just – the behavioral problems that happen. You know, if we put ourselves in that situation of being in that jail year after year after year and not knowing when your fate's going to be decided. You know. Yeah, and we'll dig more into to some of those impacts, including what what happens to, to victims and their families later in this conversation. I mean, some of the research you did, you filed three dozen record requests. You, you poured over more than 40 case files. You attended more than 1,000 uh, hearings, interviewed courthouse attorneys, a lot here. And you focused on murder cases mostly here. Why was that, Megan? Uh, I think in part because they are some of the most serious cases around, right? Um, they're going to have, they're going to be the most complicated and they're going to have the most impact on the the people who are kind of living through them, right? Yeah. It's definitely more likely that you will be, for example, locked up pre-trial if you're facing a murder charge as opposed to a lesser charge. So the effects are more tangible and I think more serious. Advocates around the country, they're saying murder trials should start no more than one year after a person's taken into custody. Now in Cook County, we know the goal is two years. We're not even meeting that, right? So why is the bar set so low? Help us understand that. And why is Cook County failing to meet the mark by such a wide margin? You know, I think the reason that this has been going on for so long is that there's not really one specific root cause. There are a lot of different smaller causes that build up on each other over the years. And there's not really one necessarily really one entity that's responsible for these delays, right? Mm. I think about the courthouse as sort of situated at the center of a lot of very different overlapping bureaucracies, right, that are going to have their own ways of doing things and their own interests and don't always necessarily work together. Um, and, and so that's, I think, a recipe for a very slow-moving, a very uh, difficult-to-change system. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does. I mean, and I'm thinking back to some of, the, uh, some of what Joe said earlier, and, and what sticks out is that Cook County never really put a comprehensive system in place to 
monitor and document why the delays occur. Right. And, and I think that's part of why we needed to go so deeply into, you know, our sample of individual cases. And we needed to interview so many people because there's not like one comprehensive way that we found of any internal entity documenting why these delays happen. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to talking about some of the players involved, Joe. So at the top, we've got Chief Judge Timothy Evans. What control does he have over how long it can take for the, the a case to be heard? And, and what did he have to say about the delays? Yeah, well, he has um, a, a pretty good amount of control, um, you know, and we're going to get into that more in, a, in another part of the series that we're going to write about on Sunday. Okay. Uh, but um, he has he has the ability to assign judges, number one, and that's an immense power, right? If you're a judge and and, and you don't want to work traffic court or you don't, whatever you don't want to do, right, um, you know, you want to be in his good graces, right? So he could say, this is the way I want it done, um, you know, and he also has the power to help shape court rules. He can help try to get court rules changed, you know, um, to say, this is the way we're going to do it. Um, but we're not seeing that, right? Mm-hmm. And Megan, I, I want to go back to Joe's mention earlier of the, the uh, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox's office, right? Her office, they acknowledge the delays, but w- they said that prosecutors are often waiting on records from law enforcement. So can you just explain that? And uh, so what extent is it a problem of, of sharing records and what role does CPD play here? Oh, that's a great question. And actually, um, we go pretty deep into that in a story that's going to run tomorrow where we try to go a little bit into more detail about some of the root causes. But The very first phase of a case is called discovery. And at that point, uh, the prosecutors and the defense need to share with each other all the potential evidence that might have any kind of relevance to the case going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, In other jurisdictions, I mean, what we were told is that a judge was really raised their eyebrows if discovery isn't complete within like six months, right? Cook County, it can take years, years. I mean, the uh, Office of the Inspector General in Chicago has found that the mechanisms by which Chicago police turn over records to prosecutors is, is I mean, it's a shambles, right? Wow. And that leaves attorneys sending subpoena after subpoena just to get basic records. And that's not even considering, for example, the role of the Illinois State Police, which is because they do all of the forensic testing for DNA. Why are we and so ballistics. far off? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that's an excellent question. I think that's... It, it's uh, just yeah. mind-boggling. What did you hear from Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart's office, Joe? Yeah, well, and, and, uh, Sheriff Dart has a unique perspective because he's the one, he's the person his office has to house all these he's, people, right? He's running the county yeah, jail where exactly, these people right? are waiting for trial. And, and he's been there a while, and he's seen the population get out of control before when there was too many people that weren't getting cases through. It's, it's less now because of other reasons, including bail reform. But his point of view is that, you know, he was a former prosecutor. He's a former state lawmaker. Now he's been sheriff for a while. He's seen this from a lot of different perspectives. And he just feels like there aren't people taking this issue seriously enough. Mm. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about a new Chicago Tribune investigation that found years-long delays for trials to start in Cook County. Some people accused of murder, they're waiting in custody for four, five, and even 10 years until their trial begins. Our guests are Tribune Enterprise reporter Megan Cropo, and she covers city violence and criminal justice. Also here, Tribune investigative reporter Joe Marr. So I want to take a moment now to go back to talking about the impact, Joe, um, what this actually looks like in real life. Tell us the story of Zaran Moody. Yeah, so Zaran Moody was arrested in... um, 2016. 
17. Um, 17, I apologize. June 2017 was the murder. There was a murder that, that occurred in a West Side Park. He was later arrested for that. Um, and it looked like his case was going to go to trial um, right before the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, it falls apart. Mm. Um, and then, then, then we lose one judge to an election, then another judge. Um, now we're on our third judge on this case. Um, and for him, and we've talked to him, and he talks about how depressing it is. His attorney has complained in open court, listen, my client is just suffering from depression yeah. over and over and over again for this. And that's one aspect. We, we, we've, he recently, according to the jail records, threw himself down a flight of stairs, right? Because, you know, he just said he, was just, he, just, said he just scribbled on the jail log because they'll ask, they'll ask, they'll ask uh, detainees, basically, mm-hmm. what happened. He said, you know, it was self-harm. Um, on the other end of that case is a grieving mother, right? Um, her son was just about to graduate from college, mm-hmm. um, and he's after a, a pickup game of basketball, walking with friends, and all of a sudden he's shot, shot in the head. And she's left trying to figure out what happened, and she's hoping for justice, and and she can't get it year after year after year. Yeah, Megan, pick up where, where Joe left off. Tell us about Corniki Bourne's story, I mean, because she's— been dragged to the courthouse dozens of times as well. So this has got to be having an incredible impact on her. Yeah, and I was I was very gratified that she, you know, was as candid with us about the effects of, of all of this on her. Um, you know, what she said was that at first it was almost like, you know, that moment in a movie where a bomb goes off and you don't totally hear anything, right? You, your brain kind of freezes. You're not processing what's happening in court mm-hmm. because you're seeing these people who are accused of your son's murder. It's very overwhelming. Um, but after, I mean, six years of attending these court hearings, that kind of wears off as you get used to the process, right? And what she's left with now is not so much that numbness, but, um, a, you know, a frustration and an anger that this doesn't seem to have gotten anywhere after so many fits and starts. Yet she keeps showing up, she says, right? What she told me was that, you know, she wants to be the, the face of her baby, this was her only child who was killed, and she feels an obligation to go and and be the face of her son. And Joe, we got to touch on the the cost of housing these inmates in jail as they await trial. Right, it's increased substantially over yeah. the past decade. Yeah, now we're at an average of two hundred forty dollars a day to house an inmate, and obviously we, that's how we, much it's costing taxpayers. How much it's costing? Yeah, Cook County taxpayers. And the, then the way it works is that when someone is jailed before trial, the county pays that to house that person in its jail. If someone is convicted, the state system pays it when they go to prison. And yeah, what we found is, you know, in crunching the numbers, we're talking, when you look at everybody who was accused of first degree murder and everybody who stayed beyond the two years that the court's goal is, we're talking $315 million over the past decade. You're right. In many cases, the cost of housing a person accused of murder in jail is the same or more than what a house costs on the outside. Exactly. I can't wrap my mind around that. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. What needs to change, Megan? I mean, and could the mayor of Chicago play a role? Well, you know, I think every every entity, every bureaucracy that touches the system will have to play a role, right? I mean, what I, I'm hoping we get across in this investigation is this goes so far beyond individual players or even individual offices. I mean, this uh, touches so many different entities around the city, around the county, you know, there needs to be some way to get them all together and talking openly in good faith about the ways to fix the root causes of these delays. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I, I think 
what we what nobody would want to see is kind of an assembly line, you know, move you through the justice system, call it good, right? Like speed for the sake of speed is not necessarily going to be justice. Mm-hmm. But we have identified all of these failures in the process itself that um, that's not justice either. So this isn't strictly an issue with, with Cook County, Joe. Um, n- no, with, with, there's all the players, right? Yeah. So anybody who, who has a hand in the justice system has a hand in this, right? Um, and I think the challenge is, do they make it a priority, right? Um, and does CPD make it a priority to get their reports done in time? It sounds pretty simple, and it sounds kind of boring. It's not very exciting. You know, this isn't law and order when you're turning in reports, right? So, right, right. Uh, but, uh, but it's critical, right, that they – because if this, the sooner they get all their reports in, all the videos, everything in the prosecutor, the sooner these other processes can start. Yeah. So it's that kind of priority setting by each agency that could make a difference. We've been speaking with Chicago Tribune reporters Joe Marr and Megan Cropo. You can read their latest reporting on this story. It's at chicagotribune.com. We're also tweeting out a link for you. Joe and Megan, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having us. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We just talked about the delays in getting murder cases to trial in Cook County. Let's hear more about the toll that this can take on people who have lost loved ones to homicide and are hoping that the trial will bring a sense of closure. Deshaun Hill is executive director of Chicago Survivors, which provides relief and mental health support to families of homicide victims. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on today. Glad to be here. I'm curious what your immediate reaction was to the Tribune's reporting showing murder cases are taking so many years to complete. You know, I was really grateful that the information was being shared because many times the survivor community feels as if this is one of those topics that people look over with a minimum of concern as they suffer through this journey and in silence and not being able to be seen as those who wait for this closure. What kind of toll are you seeing that the long waits have on families? You know, ideally it can re-traumatize them because as they prepare for what they think is going to be the ending of a trial or a progress step and it ends up being a continuance or some other form of a delay in this process, you know, it causes them to relive it, you know, um, experience all those emotions and those cognitive thoughts related to the incident. And they really don't know where to place that because they have to hold it and keep it because the case is not concluded. So Mm -hmm. it really does cause a re-traumatizing experience for most family. Yeah, it definitely sounds like they have to relive the moments over and over again. What kind of closure would you say they're seeking? So just the act of justice, right? And what it means to know that their loved one's story was heard, known, acknowledged, and there was a sense of retribution for that for that story, for that event that happened in their life that was very tragic, right? And many times the families feel as if they're forgotten, right? Mm. After the incident, the cameras go away, you know, no longer are they uh, checked in on. But at least in this essence, right, my loved one story has a form of a transition. There was something that took place that said they were heard, they were seen, they were acknowledged, and there was a form of justice. Yeah, in many cases, I mean, there are dozens of hearings along the way, mm-hmm. right, where nothing gets decided, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A judge just simply, you know, keeps extending the process. 
They're going to dozens of hearings over a series of years. Uh, it, it seems time consuming, Jashan, yeah. and emotionally yeah. draining, as you, you've pointed out. What else are you hearing from folks that you work with? You know, they're just um, even more angry, you know, at at the system, the judicial system that's put in, put in place for safety and for justice. And it's very difficult for even our criminal justice advocates and those who support them in the family system to return to those spaces, right, with hope, right? It just depletes that from them. So what, they, what they're desiring, what I often hear, is just a policy or a protocol that one can at least have some degree of expectation of an end, mm -hmm. right? It, it was already uncertain as loss, right? Senseless loss, and now I have a, a system that appears to be senseless in its progress and its protocols for how they come to a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart told the Chicago Tribune that long waits contribute to a sense of lawlessness in communities mm -hmm. with high crime. Your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts is that the law and the the systems that are put in place for justice uh, produce attitudes in community that says, you know, is this really for us? Are those, these laws in place for our protection, for our safety, and for our justice, right? And so I'm not going to say that, you know, community members go out and, and act in lawless ways, but what I will say is that they don't often believe that the laws are for them and therefore not protecting me. And so we have to find ways to create justice and to create endings and closures that one can feel okay with, that mm -hmm. can settle with them. I mean, where would we start, you yeah. think? You know, just in, in a, a systemic uh, protocol that expectations for community can say, hey, here's an ideal timeline, and you can expect us to bring some justice within this reasonable timeline, not just kind of this, you know, fly by night and it's at the whim of a particular leader who's sitting in a seat of judgment for the community, right? And then education about legal systems and that policy and those protocols, which is what our agency tries to do. But think about those who aren't informed and who don't have people walking alongside them, encouraging them, helping them to be regulated and not be activated in the courtroom and being asked to leave because of their natural emotional expression. Mm -hmm. So if we had that in place, I think that people could be more compliant with the process because the process is true to its design. Jashan, I can hear your, your passion. Why do you do this work? You know, myself, I'm a survivor. Lost my brother um, to violence in this city back in 2008. Mm. And so rather than, you know, began to kind of dwell in that place of the problem, you know, I asked myself, you know, how could I be a part of the solution and resolving what I see in my community? You know, and so it was my call to action. It was a way to repurpose, uh, to reauthor, restory mm -hmm. my narrative and to help others in ways that my family did not necessarily have, but so deserved, you know, and so as I help and treat my community, I know I interrupt violence. As I lead those on the front lines to respond to criminal acts and homicide in Chicago, we're making that difference. And, um, you know, my sons and my children will have a better Chicago to live in. Thank you for your great work. Jashan Hill is executive director of Chicago Survivors. We appreciate your time. Thank you.
In Cook County, there are hundreds of victims' families waiting for the person accused of killing their loved one to be tried for murder. But what about families who are even earlier in their quest for justice? In 2021, the Chicago Police Department solved just a little over half of the homicide cases, but only half of those actually led to an arrest. That means there are countless other people in our area waiting years to even have a suspect identified and arrested. Chaparral Wells is one of them. Her son, Courtney Copeland, was killed in 2016. And ever since, she's been working tirelessly to look for evidence of who committed that crime. She tells her story in the Somebody podcast from the Invisible Institute. Chaparral, welcome back to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. So seven years after your son was killed, you still don't know who did it or why. What would it mean to you? What would it mean to you to have an arrest and trial in this case? Well, just like many other parents, we want to find out what happened to our child. And so for us, it's not going to be what everyone would consider justice because Courtney is no longer with us. So, but it will give us a sense of knowing that the perpetrator is off the street, that someone has uh, been arrested to pay the price for taking my son's life and also possibly others. So for seven years, this person has been roaming around Chicago continuing probably to perpetrate against other Chicagoans. And that's the sad thing that's happening in in these cases not being solved. Wow. Um, You took it upon yourself to search for evidence, which you, you presented to the detectives on the case. What reason did they give for the evidence not being sufficient to follow up on? Well, basically, immediately they dismissed Uh, my investigation in regards to uh, the murder of Courtney Copeland, because I think they really felt offended that I was doing their job. And so what I have noticed is that we see constantly that, uh, you know, you talked about the rates being 50%, but when you, when you peel back the onion in black and brown community, it's, it's probably like 25 to 30. So it's half of that of the white counterparts. And so what we're seeing in the black and brown community, that our cases are not being highlighted or even worked on. What I noticed in, in, in actually investigating my son's murder is that when I looked at the actual files and what the actual police department was doing to try to locate the perpetrator and to actually do investigative work, that they didn't do anything. Mm. And so what we're seeing is that uh, what we're seeing is that in Chicago, they pick and choose which cases are important for them to solve. I believe that we had enough evidence to actually at least bring the person in for questioning. And the thing is, is that they had the person in in, in custody themselves, but they didn't go and do the due diligence in order to do more investigation on those two people that they arrested the night that Courtney was killed. Mm. And so what we're finding as parents and survivors is that, you know, we're trying to force the Chicago police department to actually take our cases seriously. Our children are not just a number or another victim in the city of Chicago lawlessness and crime. Right. 
They're human. They belong to us. We love them. And so what we're trying to get Chicago uh, Police Department to actually see is that every victim matters. Yeah. It's not just the high profile or the children or the babies or, you know, someone who knows an elected official. Every child, every life matters. We just saw a 15-year-old, Demia uh, Morris, get killed the other day. What is going to happen with her family? I mean, this this all sounds like, from one mother to another, this sounds like a, a, a parental nightmare. Not only dealing with the loss of my child, but also having to feel like I'm solving the case on my own. Uh, I see the city's that's, top that's... lawyer denied your request uh, to see the investigation just last week. Yes. And I was truly, truly devastated uh, by them denying it. Because to me, I'm like, you're saying that you did everything to help save my son's life. You said that you didn't handcuff him, even though we have proof that you did. And now you're denying it? For what purpose? If you have nothing to hide. And so I'm trying to figure out if Chicago Police Department did nothing wrong, why not show me the evidence that you did nothing wrong? And so we're constantly in this battle and this fight uh, as survivors to actually get our cases heard and to, to bring some sense of compassion to what happened to our children. And we shouldn't have to fight this hard. So... Activists have said that unsolved homicides are themselves a root cause of crime. Chicago's mayor-elect has also echoed that sentiment. So do you see this leading to more crime? The the fact that uh, most murder cases in the county, that they're taking so many years to go to trial? Is it a sense that people can just get away with these killings? Yes. I mean, it's so sad. But the reality is, is that 90% of, of our cases are, are not solved in our community. You know, so it, the likelihood, what do they say, one in four people uh, will get arrested for a crime in Chicago? So 75% is getting away with murder. And so these people who perpetrate these types of crimes say, okay, I'll take my chance. I'll commit more crimes. So that there's nothing to deter them from doing what they're doing. And they know that they're not going to get the response from the Chicago Police Department to actually force them to stop doing this crime. Because I, I recall when, when this happened to my son and Eddie Johnson said, we know where all the gangbangers, we have 1,500 gangbangers in Chicago. We know where they live. And I'm like, well, why don't you go get them, Eddie? You know where they are. You know who they are and you know where they live, and you still let them roam the street. Didn't make sense to me. And so my thing is that we have the means in order to peel back Mm. and stop the crime, but it's the will factor. Will we do what is required? Will we do what is required to stop this crime in Chicago? Because it's very sectional. And to that end, uh, our mayor-elect, Brandon Johnson, has invoked the need to direct resources to solving homicides and crime as, you know, a key tenet of his public safety plan. What do you make of his promise? He says he's going to create 200 more detective positions within CPD to work on this. I think it's a great step. I think that they do need more detectives. However, they do need also 
milestones and, and, and projections in an actual format. Like, you know, we were doing basic uh, detective work ourselves on this case. We were putting together the interview process. Everything that they are doing is very shoddy. And so they need actual uh, milestones. Like, you know, I worked in sales for my for mo- majority of my life. And I had to meet targets and goals. That's what they need. Right. They need to have some type of accountability as to, hey, why are you only solving 30% of the crime in the black and brown community? No one could work uh, at 30% and still get collect a full check and not be written up, putting on probation. Mm-hmm. So we have to have hold them accountable into some uh, respects. But also, you know, like me, I can count on my hands how many times uh, police have given me an update on my son. It should be a way I should be able to get an update on my son's case oh, without man. making that call. Does that have you waiting by the phone constantly? Yes. Yes. I mean, we're constantly uh, waiting to try to hear an update. Or we'll send an email. I'll send an email. We'll reach back out. You know, we shouldn't have to do that. If it wasn't for me pushing so hard to try to find out what happened to Courtney Copeland, I would not have any answers. Mm. And that is the saddest part of what we're speaking about today, because they don't have any accountability. They could just say, oh, it's an ongoing investigation. That's their favorite word and how they deal with these cases that have been prolonged. Well, what are you doing? What progress have you made? In all of this time, in all of these years, in seven years, what progress have you made to solving this case? And when you put, when you pull up the files, they have done nothing. I tell people all the time that 48 hours, that TV show, that's what they give these cases. If they don't solve it within 48 hours, they're not going to solve it, and your child will be a cold case. That is what we're seeing here in Chicago. That's Chaperl Wells, host of Somebody Podcast from the Invisible Institute. Thank you so much for your time, Chaperl. Thank you for having me.